Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and you're listening to I Love That Movie. And if you want to reach me on Twitter, you can reach out under AYA Lisa Cosplay. I'm also on Instagram under AYA and as a Nancy AMI Lisa. And I have a f- closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. The group is closed, but just send me a request and I'll add you. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment free. My only rule is try to keep it positive. Um, so that brings me to who my guest is today. I have a returning guest, a veteran on the podcast. I have Scott. Hi, Lisa. I, I always say veterans like, yeah, I've been on here like way too many times now, but I just (laughs) love coming on your show. It's so much fun. Yes. And Scott, uh, for those of my listeners, I feel like most of my listeners are your listeners, but (laughs) (laughs) it happens that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if, 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 in case they haven't heard of you. Uh, you want to t- tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I am a teacher. I love movies. And I am the co-founder and co-host of the Suicide Squadcast, a podcast and network dedicated to pretty much all things DC. Uh, the Suicide Squadcast, we do focus primarily on the movies, even though lately we have been kind of spicing it up with weekly reviews of every episode of Titans on the DC Universe streaming service. So that's been kind of that's been kind of giving me something jazz to look forward to every week. But yeah, my co-host Tim and I, we just we 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 keep you up to date on all the latest things DC. Yeah, and just want to say this isn't like my top five podcasts ever. So please go give them a listen if you haven't yet. Oh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Don't cry. Instead of crying, tell us what movie we're talking about today. Oh, oh I love this movie. It is nine the nineteen fifty-nine classic Some Like It Hot. Yes. So before we dive into the plot of Some Like It Hot, let's talk a little bit about when you first saw this movie, how you first saw this movie, etc. I was about to say, don't tell me, did you see this in the theaters? Because like, you know I'm not that old. <laughs> no, I think we're like a year apart. So <laughs> if you're that old, then I'm that old. Oh, okay. No, I think it was around like, it was in the, it was like 1998, 1999. Uh, I bought the VHS at a Sam's Club because, I mean, it had Marilyn Monroe and Jack Lemmon. And I was like. This is kind of a no-brainer. It was one of those movies that I think I bought like sight unseen. I just read the back going, I think I'd like this. I also think at the time, um, I was heavily involved in theater in high school and college. And my we were doing a talent showcase at, at the spring semester. And we 
And there's a musical, a Broadway musical based on Some Like It Hot called Sugar. And we did a musical number to start the showcase and a musical number to end the showcase that uh, came from this musical. And so it, when I saw it was based on Some Like It Hot, I just decided to go and buy the movie and watch it. And I have been in love with it ever since, since, v- since the VHS days. That tells you how, mu- how long this goes. <laughs> I love that. Well, I like that you kind of stumbled upon it. Like you just saw the cover, read the back. That like hardly ever happens anymore, I feel like. Oh, no, not at all. And so, but you know, I, I'm not sure how many of your listeners have ever been in a Sam's Club before, but back when they used to sell movies, they really don't do that anymore. I mean, there would just be like stacks upon stacks of VHSs. And, you know, while my parents are grocery shopping and doing what else, I would just go, I mean, they'd be doing that for like 20, 30 minutes. So I just, I would just bum around the movie section and just look at all the movies. And I love classic movies. If it's black and white, I'm probably going to check it out. So I, I just love the fact that I get to finally, I mean, I've talked about a Batman movie and a bond movie and a weird independent movie that you were like, what the heck are you making me watch? So <laughs> it's kind of nice to do a, do my first comedy on this show. And along with it being a comedy, it's a classic and a comedy at the same time. So it's just like, it checks all the boxes for me. That's awesome. Well, my story is considerably shorter because I don't think I've ever seen this movie. <gasps> Scandalous. I know. I know. There's so many classic films that I haven't seen yet. So I do like when guests pick them because I'm like, oh, that's that's going to force me to sit down and spend some time and watch something that I don't know as much about. So I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, when I saw like the cast, I was like, well, you know, this is probably going to be pretty good. <laughs> so I was excited to see it. Um, and I guess before we get any further, let's go ahead and I'll read the synopsis really quick. Um, you know, this the show is never spoiler free. So I would go watch this before or let us talk you into watching it if you want. But just know that going in. Uh, so yeah, so here's the summary. Um, after witnessing a mafia murder, slick saxophone player, Joe and his lifelong suffering buddy, Jerry improvise a quick plan to escape from Chicago with their lives. Disguising themselves as women, they join an all female jazz band and hop a train bound for sunny Florida. While Joe pretends to be a millionaire to win the band's sexy singer, Sugar, Jerry finds himself pursued by a real millionaire as the things heat up and mobsters close in. Oh, that's a great synopsis, actually. Yes. Right? <laughs> it's pretty good. I think that one was, uh, is a, I think that was Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, good, good. You, <laughs> sometimes you, they do. Yeah, sometimes I have to go between the two. Wikipedia, IMDb, that's where most of them are, but I liked that one. Oh, that was awesome. Okay. So where are we, what are we going to talk about first? So I was going to throw out a couple quick facts. I just have two um, and feel free to chime in. And then if you want to do a couple and then we'll kind of dive into the director and so on. Okay. Uh, So on the top, I have uh, the title of the film refers to the contemporary description of interpreting jazz music as hot or improvisational as opposed to sweet or straight, meaning as written. Yeah. I, I, I can totally dig that because the music is such a big part of this movie. Yeah. And I was wondering what that meant. I mean, they they say a line in the film, but I also just wondered, like, in a broader sense, what that meant. So I thought that fact was kind of cool. It's also a double entendre. 
it does refer to it, it, it is also kind of a pun on sex as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the screenwriter has kind of admitted that. So it's like you yeah. get you get all the meanings in this movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I figured, but then I was like, I wonder if it had something to do with the music as well. So I kind of thought that was cool too. So Jack Lemon had wrote that the first sneak preview had a bad reaction and a lot of audiences walked out. Um, so basically, you know, they went to Wilder, the director of the film, and they were like, uh, what are you going to change? And he basically said nothing. You know, don't panic over one review. Uh, that was just the wrong crowd. And so he, I think he took out like 60 seconds of the film. Exactly. Yes. And then re-showed it. And audiences loved it. And I really like that story because I feel too many times people are influenced by initial reactions. And I always think that. I'm like, unless you got a lot of them, and sometimes they do, um, you know, that, that's not necessarily 100% reliable. I even feel like sometimes audiences can sort of influence each other. And so... I don't know. I'm, I'm just glad he stuck to his guns on that. The movie's really funny. It is outside of the box, especially for the time. It's risky, but that's kind of what I think helps this movie have staying power and still be so funny today, you know? Yeah, actually, I that that story you just told was exactly one of the stories that I was like, oh, Felicia doesn't tell the story. I'm going to tell the story. <laughs> uh, but another part about it is that on the second preview, normally when they would do previews, they would say a preview by, a you know, of a major studio film. Well, apparently for that second preview, the card read a preview of a minor studio film. And so it let the audience realizes they're walking the movie oh this is a comedy and so like they oh. went in the right mindset of oh we're supposed to be laughing at this gotcha yeah that that definitely helps set the mood yeah okay i i got some really fun facts for you go for it uh, this movie was shot in black and white for two reasons because this is 1959 they had color in right by this point but one was billy wilder felt that as a period piece that he was basically making a parody of a gangster movie he felt like it needed to be in black and white because of the period but also the makeup looked so awful on tony curtis and jack lemon he realized that the audiences would never like he wasn't going to be able to win over the idea that you could believe that these two guys were passing as women but when you shot it in black and white it doesn't it's not as garish and doesn't like offend your sensibilities as much. And so it made it an easier pill to swallow that you could believe these two guys are disguising themselves as women. Right. Yeah. I had heard both those facts before. And I was going to say, like, I, I heard the makeup looked a little too green on the guys. <laughs> was one thing that I heard. But um, I have to say, like, watching it in black and white, I, I think the guys look great. Oh no! I <laughs> that was one thing that hit me right off the bat. Like it doesn't, like you know, it's it's a comedy and they want it to be funny. But I, you know, their their makeup is not overstated. It's pretty natural looking, and um, I think I I I maybe it was on Facebook. I said I think Tony Curtis actually looked really good. Yeah, <laughs> he looked pretty. Um, the other fact that I want to start off with, and then we others can come up as we talk about the movie. Uh, the the producers like the money originally wanted uh frank sinatra and yes, missy gainer <laughs> and you know why jack lemon got the role was because when billy wilder the director and writer of the movie made a lunch appointment with sinatra sinatra stood him up and so that just sealed it and they were able to say no we're going we're going with jack lemon which this became the very first but definitely not the last collaboration between jack lemon and billy wilder yeah, and honestly, that 
Good call. Good because call. I just, there's no way Frank Sinatra could have done what Jack Lemmon did in this movie. I mean, he like pretty much steals the show. And yeah. as a Sinatra fanboy, I'm a big Sinatra fanboy. Even I was going, nah, nah, not no Frank. Give, give me Jack. I, I want Jack. It's, I don't want Frank. Yeah, it would have been like having two of the Tony Curtis character. Like, no, you need someone really funny. <laughs> Which was so weird to think that Jack Lemmon was basically like an unknown. Like, this was the movie that like put him on the map. Well, good. <laughs> I loved it. He was my favorite character by far. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and all my other facts, I feel like, will naturally flow into our discussion. So we can just, we can move on. That's fine. Okay. Well, let's talk about director Billy Wilder, who also directed The Seven Year Itch, Double Indemnity, an amazing movie. Yes, it is. And then, <laughs> and Sabrina. Oh, you left out one. You left out two of my favorites. Go for the, it. Go for it. Those are the, just like the ones that stood out to me. <laughs> oh, The Apartment and Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I haven't seen those. Oh. I've got to see those. Ooh, I think I, I think I have future episodes first. I love that movie. I mean, you need to see those movies seriously. Uh, the Apartment came out the very next year after Some Like It Hot. Oh, gotcha. So, oh yeah, I I love me, I, and I'm so glad you you've seen Double Indemnity. I love that movie. Fred McMurray, it's so, so wonderful. Good. I was like shocked by because I kind of like I just read what it was about. And I'm like, oh, I'll just pop this in, and then I couldn't get up from my seat. I mean, it was amazing and. It, it automatically skyrocketed to like one of my favorites. I loved it. I mean, I'm looking at this list of like his his like most well known movies, and I have seen five on this list that I own and consider like favorites of mine. Billy Wilder is a is a writer director who it's just like he's one of those directors that you tell me he directed a movie, it's like oh I'm watching it. Like there's just there's there's no question in my mind. I have fallen in love with Billy Wilder over the years just based on the movies we just talked about. Yeah, I mean, uh, a couple of facts that I had about him was that he had collaborated closely with Steven Spielberg on the script for Schindler's List. And he was one of the several directors who was actually considered to direct it. But he ended up feeling he was a little too old. It was kind of on the way to retirement around the time when it came out. And uh, it was also a little too personal. His mother, stepfather, and grandmother were actually killed in the Holocaust. Yeah. So uh, he ultimately told Steven Spielberg to direct it. So just something for, for people that may not have seen some of these older movies, like maybe a little bit of a closer connection. But I mean, that's how, you know, incredible he was. Like he... You know, it was on the level of Steven Spielberg. Oh, absolutely. So, especially, yeah, yeah. especially in his heyday in the 40s and the 50s. I mean, mm -hmm. th this this man was making movies almost, almost once a year. I mean, yeah. some of his biggest movies are like 50, 53, 54, 55, 57. Like it was like he was churning a, a movie a year and he was writing them and directing them. I think that's just incredible talent. Right. Yeah. And he's among, you know, an elite group of directors who have won Best Picture Best director, best screenplay, all for like the same film, like you're talking about. Oh yeah, I think I think that was for the apartment actually, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because uh, this film we're talking about tonight got nominated but won nothing because it just oh, it it's hard for comedies to win. Well, and it was also the same year that Ben Hur came out. Oh, and like yeah. Ben Hur oh, took all the awards. <laughs> all the awards. All the awards. <laughs> well, let's talk uh, about the plot next, and then we'll. I think we can kind of bring up the actors as they come up. Oh, definitely. Does that work for you? Oh, that absolutely works for me. 
Well, great. We'll start us off. I think it's so funny <laughs> because you go into this and I mean, any cover art you see, you already see the guys as girls and you see Marilyn. I mean, so like that's what you're ready for. But when this movie starts, it starts like a classic 40s Warner Brothers gangster movie. I mean, yes, it's like Chicago, 1929. It's in black and white. You see the Hearst and then, you know, the cops come up and they're firing. And it's like it. the movie starts off with a car chase with like a gun, a gun shooting car chase. And it's like, what am I watching? I think that's what's so cool about the movie is there's so much going on. Like, in addition to being funny, it's just. It's very exciting. And anytime you set a movie in this time period, I mean, I'm automatically on board. Um, we'll talk about it here in a minute, but there's there's a part that really is exciting to me. But I'll just say that I like any mobster related <laughs> movies in general and that Prohibition era. And yeah, it's just this hits my sweet spot right right away. Well, what's also great about it is that um, a couple of, uh, of the sort of supporting cast – are actual like gangster movie stars that Billy Wilder cast to basically play parodies of the kind of roles that made them famous. Because Right. It would be like having like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in the movie, like kind of selling how serious it is, even though it's going to be a comedy. Right. Because you have George Raft who plays Spats Columbo, which is kind of like the Al Capone of this movie. And he was a big 40s gangster movie star. And then you had Pat O'Brien playing the Fed. And it's like they're totally playing the cliche characters that made them stars back in the day. So I just I just love the idea. of, and, and like you said, it was like it was like when Warren Beatty put Al Pacino and Dick Tracy. It's just like that. Well, that's just what you do. You, you get somebody who has like instant star appeal and audience recognition going yeah that's what he plays and right, i love yeah. it i think even for someone like me that may not be familiar with some of those actors they're they play it really straight it's not like funny or silly and so the the gangsters in this movie feel real and they feel like frightening and i think I, I don't know i always like comedy like that where it's in what's happening and you can like trust what's happening is funny enough to where you don't have to ham it up necessarily so i really appreciate oh, yeah. that about you it know, it's like you don't even know this is a comedy until tony curtis and jack lemon show up because right you know the the joke is that the speakeasy is in the is in a funeral parlor and like you mm -hmm. get the code word and you know, like they, they have the secret door that lets you in and they're all talking in that very stilted 40s gangster way of the, you know, what, what'd you see, sir? Tell me again. I'm a little hard of hearing. And it's like Toothpick Charlie. And, and they're all talking like this because it's the way you talk in a gangster movie. And it's just <laughs> and, and, and like you said, they're playing it like it's an actual gangster movie until Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon show up on the bandstand in the speakeasy and they're complaining about how they have no money. They need to pay everybody off. If they don't, they're going to get kicked out of their apartment and they're you know not going to be able to eat and they owe everybody. And I just love how it automatically sets up one of their two problems. Like you automatically see that, that Tony Curtis as Joe is the slick gambler, you know, ladies man. And you can automatically see that Jerry played by Jack Lemmon is like the sort of fussy, frantic, you know, so worried about it. Like he's worried about paying everybody back. And Joe's all worried about the get rich quick scheme of how they're going to make even more money if they just borrow 10 bucks or something. Yeah. I love how, uh, 
Tony Curtis makes Jack Lemmon feel so bad about wanting to get dental work done, which would actually be like a good use of their money. And he's like, no, we have to pay people off first. And he's like, oh, of course. He's like, but we could do that by betting this all on the horses. And he's like, what? And and yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that they, they make a joke about how this, this job is going to last for a long time, or it's not a joke yet until something happens right after that. But <laughs> uh, Well, I and that, and the, and the joke is the fact that they see the Fed using his badge to poke a hole in his cigar that he's smoking because he's right, which was like super dumb, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> like, you don't think everyone's looking for badges in a speakeasy in Prohibition era Chicago? I know. At first, I thought something was going to happen to him because he asked to sit in a certain space and they told him, no, to sit over there. And I'm like, oh, they're on to him. I guess no, <laughs> but what I love is that one of my one of the first things I ever laugh at is just Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon play so well off each other because they're talking, they're talking, and 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 Joe is all like, "Oh, why are you always worrying, Jerry?" And Jerry's the one who sees the badge, and he goes, "Don't look now, but the whole city just went underwater." And they see the badge, and they just look to each other, and they just start packing up their instruments. <laughs> and I just, I just love it. it's like, yeah, it's funny. The timing is perfect. The timing yeah. is perfect, and that's what this, this movie is. If you want a how-to manual on comedic timing, this movie has got it in spades. Like line delivery and looks, it's just like it just it just this is a snappy two-hour movie. Like it 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 doesn't even feel two hours because it's just always moving. Oh, for sure. And like, you know, when this came up, you know, I, I watch uh, some classic films for the podcast and sometimes I just watch them on my own. And for the most part, Nick, my husband, enjoys watching them, but sometimes he'll see a certain movie and he'll like just see the cover and go, ah. and like, honestly, when he saw this, he went, mm. and I was like, okay, I'll watch it while you're at work. But then the second it was over, I was like, man, you should have watched it with me because it, it really is that funny. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes comedy can be dated. And when you try to show some somebody something from a long time ago, it's like it just isn't funny anymore. The jokes aren't current. You know, the pop culture references don't make sense. But there are some rare movies that the comedy is pretty much timeless. And I, I do feel that this movie has that. Oh, yeah. And I'm sorry. That drunk who who gets kicked out of the speakeasy and then gets brought back. Oh, yeah, wants another cup of coffee. I want another <laughs> cup of coffee. And, just, just, and I'm sorry, I can't. He says it like five or six times and I laughed every single time. It's just like, yeah. I even know the line is coming and I laugh. It's just but it's just funny how long that gag goes on for, like, no matter what the situation, how obvious it is that he should stop. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, because it's that that's just a great because because, you know, the whole point is that, you know, like you said, it's the setup of, oh, they think they have this great job. And then literally, like after the first week, the cops bust in on it and then they're right back to, you know, being penniless and needing a job. And I, so what was the what was the bit you were really that you really loved? Um, in that particular scene, yes. or um, well, yeah, I agreed with you about the coffee. I liked how that guy, uh, the, the coffee drinker, you know, he's like, "I want another cup of coffee," which is obviously like a euphemism. They're calling the drink something else, or they're adding alcohol to coffee. And then uh, he stumbles upon and spills his coffee onto Spat's shoe, and <laughs> and then he asks for, you know, instead of like realizing that he's possibly about to be rubbed out he asked for another cup of coffee again and then it's jumping ahead a little bit but later in the scene when uh 
when they uh, are arresting everybody, you know, everyone's fleeing and the coffee guy comes out again and asks for another cup of coffee. I mean, they literally have to take this guy away. And I just thought that that was so hysterical. Oh, man. <laughs> and and so, of course, you know, at that point, you know, you get the you really get a scene after that that just continues to show kind of what a scumbag Joe is. And yeah, and, and how bad you feel for Jerry that he's kind of like you just wonder, Jerry, why do you hang around this guy? Because they hawk their overcoats and it's like the middle of winter in Chicago and it's snowing and they're freezing and they're going to like all the talent agencies trying to find work. And then and they're not welcome at some of them. Oh, Maybe you're about to say that. Oh, no, no. It's just that, that they're just like <laughs> now it's and it's all the secretaries and you get to the one secretary who. Oh, dear God, Joe was just a complete dirtbag, too. And she is about to have the time of her life, you know, pulling a fast one on them. And I don't know who that actress is, but she I love these old black and white movies. When you get that that lady who's just the broad, who, who, who just, <laughs> who's just sassy and just like independent and just willing to like give it to him. And just the fact that she's just like, no. You are a complete jerkwad. I don't know why you would even think about showing back up here. Yeah, I love the way it's setting up. I mean, it really plays into the plot later. You don't realize it in the moment of how Joe's, you know, gambling and just, you know, misuse of money and mistreatment of women is going to play such a huge part. His comeuppance is coming. (laughs) So this is where we get the idea that there is this all girl band who needs a saxophone and a bass player, but the exchange they have with the talent agent, it is so classic timing that like on the soundtrack CD that I got this movie, this is one of the scenes they put on the CD. Oh, wow. So it's, it's that the, um, you gotta be under 25. We could pass for that. You gotta be blonde. We can dye our hair and you gotta be girls. We could, no, we couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) it's just that sort of and that's what i love about these kind of comedies it's just that sort of that rapid fire like it's just the comedy comes from the fact that you don't get a chance to breathe and laugh until you actually hit the punchline at the end of the delivery Mm -hmm. and i just i just i just just love that tony curtis going no we couldn't (laughs) because it's like what was what was jerry about to suggest i don't know (laughs) Poor Jerry. Oh, my God. And it's just so funny because then this leads them to, once again, Joe using his scumbagness that they're going to borrow this. After after realizing that he stood up the secretary, then they're going to go and borrow her car to go on a job. <sighs> yeah, it's kind of like he's just one of those guys that's just gotten away with it. And I think maybe Jerry sticks with him because even though he's getting them further and further into the hole, I mean, Joe's constant confidence in himself, I think is just a little bit magnetic for someone like Jerry. (laughs) Who doesn't seem to have any confidence at all. Right. No. Um, I love, because that, that leads, and once again, that places the plot because they have to go to the garage where the secretary's car is being kept. And of course, this entire scene is supposed to be a fictionalized version of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which. Yep. And that's what I was going to bring up, too, really quick. Um, I've seen the wall or part of the wall um, at the Mob Museum in Vegas. So when I saw the scene, I was like, oh, 
oh, that reminds me of, you know, I was like, oh, that reminds me of that mall. Oh, my goodness. I, I've been to Vegas and I didn't get, I didn't know where the mall museum was. I hate that I missed that. It's uh, well, it's in old Vegas. Oh. It's on Fremont Street. Um, But if I highly recommend it, it is so fun. Like um, it was one of the top uh, recommended things. I think it was either on Yelp or TripAdvisor. And so we took like a cab to go to it. And it's, I think it's like inside an old bank or office building, like a, um, some, something historical. And they have a piece of that wall. They also have like these pretend Tommy guns you can pick up and stuff. And, uh, there's, there's even like a little mobster theme, uh, bar pretty close by. It's super fun. Highly recommend. I ended up buying some books there so I could keep reading. It was very exciting. If you've ever gone to Vegas and kind of, if you're like me, you kind of wish it was like the Vegas in your head, which is like probably in the forties or fifties. <laughs> and like, this is kind of getting to, to experience that a little bit. It's really We're fun. like kindred spirits. I swear. Cause I went, I went to Vegas <laughs> on my honeymoon and I had that exact same experience. I kind of went, oh. It's not the Ve- it's not the it's not the mobster Ve- I want the mobster Vegas. Want- yeah, you got to take the mobster tours or like see a show that's sort of a throwback, like a Rat Pack type show. But yeah, it's like unless you do that, you don't. You know, it's not the it's same. Just- but I I highly recommend next time. You okay, know. awesome. <laughs> well, I but continue. Sorry. Well, no, no, it's great because you know the whole. This is where really the whole. This is like the inciting incident of the movie because Joe and Jerry witness this version of the Saint De- Valentine's Day massacre, and that's what prompts them to, you know, that's what gets Joe to like actually like Jerry's idea because they need a way to get out of Chicago and get as far away from Chicago as possible, and and this all girl band that was a joke just five minutes before is going to be all expenses paid and get them all the way to Florida, which in their minds is as far away from Spats Colombo as they can get. Yeah. And, and I do want to say, I think a really smart part of this scene is having that guy show them where the car is in the garage and they just happen to duck right on time. And so the guy that was showing them the car is the one that the mobsters see. And they initially, was he says like, join us. Join, like, us. join us. Over yes. Here. That, and I don't know <laughs> that, who that, that's so brutal even now. <laughs> and I don't know who that actor is, but I know he's been in gangster movies because he's just that he's like that knuckleheaded henchman type. And he just has that mm-hmm. distinct, like that look on his face with all the, like the craggly wrinkles that just go, you just look like a mob. You look like a mobster. It's like, you, you can't right. cast this any perf- more perfectly. Yeah, and so he he goes over to the wall, and then the massacre happens, and they shoot like I don't know, it was like ten or twelve people. I mean, it's like a lot, and um, I think that's good because it really raised the stakes. Rather than them just seeing it, actually having someone that was with them get caught and then shot, like I don't know. To me, I, w- I was just thinking when I watched it, I'm like, that makes it seem even more intense. And then, yeah, you're right. This is like. Huh, being a woman in the all-girl band starting to look pretty good. <laughs> uh, this leads me to one of my other little pieces of trivia. Oh, go for uh, it. Tony Curtis couldn't talk high enough. He is dubbed for yeah. a good portion of this movie when he's putting on the Josephine voice because he couldn't speak that high. Ah, uh, yeah, I saw that. Um, there's there's a little YouTube video that I'm going to share later. It was like 25 minutes of like behind the scenes stuff, and it was really cool. And, the, and he they interviewed him, and he talked about that. And I did think that was kind of funny uh, watching it because it's something like I guess I just don't even think of like in terms of like being a guy and having to impersonate a woman. But yeah, not everybody can talk 
in that higher register. Jack so. Lemon, not a problem. Tony Curtis had an issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jack Lemon, uh, he's anyway, we'll we'll keep talking about. It. But yeah, you know, Tony Curtis, amazing job in this role. He may not have had the perfect voice be I again, I'm just gonna say it. He had the great he had the perfect look. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's a pretty man and a woman, apparently. Yes, he is, very much so. And of course, <laughs> this leads to one I mean, there are several famous scenes in this movie, but this leads to probably like one of the most famous scenes in the movie at the train station, which is the introduction of Josephine and Daphne, which is just perfect because you've got like the the trombone doing like the wah 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 <laughs> and it's like it's a it would normally be like the two sexy broads walking down the train but it's these two guys who have no idea how to walk in heels <laughs> yeah i yeah i had heard that like they they got some training to walk in heels but then they decided no let's you know let's act like two guys that have never done it before because that wouldn't be first of all it wouldn't be funny and then it wouldn't be as genuine if they were like perfectly passing which i mean they're already like pretty close to passing so i think if they were you know gliding on heels then you'd be like it would lose the humor of it. yeah because i i love that another one of my favorite lines comes in this scene where uh, jerry says how do they walk in these things and joe goes must be the way the weight is distributed And I'm just like, oh, (laughs) going back to what you said, this is a very subversive movie with some very like (laughs) uh jokes like sprinkled throughout, which I think lends to it's kind of it's like the 50s version of a raunchy comedy because there are jokes like that. You go, (laughs) I know what you did there. Okay, (laughs) I do like about it, though, and it's it's not necessarily i guess on topic but in terms of the humor and the the way the movie's handled it's not mean at all which i think is the most surprising part of the movie to me because to be honest like there was a part of me that was like okay i'm gonna kind of have to just accept that it's old and it's probably gonna be kind of mean and like all the jokes are gonna be like oh it's impossible to be a woman they're so crazy you know and like i don't know i was just worried that like under modern sensibilities it would seem harsh or mean but it's it's actually not at all like it's just actually funny. it's a it's about teaching these men a lesson <laughs> yeah yeah and like a, in sort of um i don't know yeah it's like a walk i guess walk in her a mile in her shoes kind of way um you know even Marilyn's character which hasn't been introduced yet but we will um you know everyone is handled really well i think in the film um like i said i mean yeah the guys do get their lesson but even their lesson isn't super harsh like i don't know i just thought they keep everything pretty positive and everybody has a good wrap-up at the end i don't know i i like that about it oh absolutely i think it, it just kept in mind this is a comedy yeah so we're gonna keep things light right you know? it does stay light right and even the mobsters are kind of light only because they're, they're they're light parody versions of mobsters sure and, and so and of course you brought it up, so we have to indicate the magnificent introduction of one of the most beautiful film stars of all time, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. I'm, I mean, this woman is just gorgeous. And, she really is. And a talent. I think I saw your tweet this week, and they like, you did not quite appreciate how talented she actually is as, I, as yeah. an actor. It's kind of like when I did that episode with Sarah about uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, I think some of these older Hollywood actresses, I just, 
I wasn't really into some of these movies, especially, I hate to admit it, but back in the day, musicals, I didn't really watch a lot. And then anything that I would consider like a romantic comedy, I kind of avoided and they tended to have stars like this in them. Um, So if I did watch a classic movie, they tended to be more serious. So I kind of always just assumed she was kind of a dumb bimbo, like the character that she's essentially playing. Um, And you know, also, I, I just felt that there's so many little girls that looked up to her so much. And I always felt that it was sort of like looking up to like Kim Kardashian or something. You know what I mean? Where it's like you're thinking you're concentrating only on the glamour of that person. But, you know, what how are they really a role model? And I know that sounds super like mom here or too preachy, but that always kind of bothered me about her. I was like, hey, you know, why not put, I don't know, Amelia Earhart on your wall or, you know, like a real, what I would call like a hero, I guess. And so I think in the same way that probably a lot of people in her own time dismissed her, I was actually guilty of doing the same thing. And I realized that uh, from watching a few of her movies recently, I thought, man, you know, I really dismissed her based on her looks, which is terrible. That's like, (laughs) you know, that's like the opposite of what I want to be doing. Um, But she was genuinely a very funny person. Uh, Her comedic timing is amazing in this movie and in every movie I've seen her in. I even kind of feel like the director uh, in the behind the scenes was, you know, kind of cutting her down and even some of the people she worked with, but like they were acting like they are responsible for how funny she is. But I just... I don't agree with that because I've seen her in other stuff and I think she's hilarious and she is playing a part, but she knows that part really well and she can be funny and dramatic and everything in between. I don't know. I thought it was a really good performance. Well, I think some of the behind the scenes stuff that I I think I saw some of the same stuff that you did. I think a lot of people just had to deal with frustration with her Mm -hmm. because she was super insecure as an actress. She was super insecure. Yeah. And I think what I've seen interviews with Billy Wilder that because this is his second time working with her. He'd already worked with her on the seven year itch. Right. And right. So he I mean, he he brought her back because he knew he'd be she'd be great for the role. And he said she was great. I think something that Billy Wilder would say is he just wished she would have believed herself how great yeah. she was. Mm-hmm. And, and I know they kind of got into it like. He he would like insist you say the the line a certain way, which is fine. I mean, a lot of directors want you to stick to the script, especially if they wrote it. Um, but <laughs> one of the behind the scenes thing I saw was he kept insisting she do it correctly, and her back was actually turned, <laughs> so they could have like redone it in you know post production. But he just it was like getting to a, a battle of wills at that point between the two of them. They were I just see, like butting heads. <laughs> I saw the exact same feature that you're talking okay. about, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Uh, but it's kind of funny because there's a callback to seven year itch in the train scene. Yes, yes, yeah. Because as she's walking down the train, some steam shoots out of the train and she kind of jumps and starts walking. It's supposed to be a, an homage to the 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 famous standing over the subway and the wind blowing her skirt up. Yeah, and it's an homage, but I think it's actually an improvement because I think it's in a weird way. Number one, I think it's actually funnier. And then number two even though it's not as obvious and direct as blowing up her skirt, it just weirdly feels more like sexy, funny than the first, than the original scene. Do you agree? Oh, I, 
Oh, I completely agree. And and Jack Lemon agrees with you too, by the way. Uh, of course, I love, reaction, his, yeah. I love his lines like, look at that. It's like jello on springs. <laughs> and I think that's a big part of Jack Lemon's character too. Like he is such a lech. And by the end of the movie, he's like totally different, which I thought was really funny. Oh, it, and it's just, and it's just watching. I mean, he is just like a, a horn dog for yeah. Marilyn Monroe, like for the next like 10, 15 minutes. And it's just all he, it, and it's like, I love that whole thing. I'm a girl. I'm a girl. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that line that kind of works its way through it. But yeah, it, it's a great introduction. It, you, you, once again, you just get that sort of muse, that, that great music. And I have to give credit to the composer, Adolf Deutsch. Oh, the music in this movie is so fantastic. If you love jazz, you're going to love the score of this movie. Yeah, it was. I, I liked all the musical numbers in this film. Again, I mentioned that a lot, but there are some movies I've seen that are musicals where sometimes you feel like they're taking a break. And I know this isn't really a musical, but it has quite a few musical numbers and quite a few songs in it. Um, and every time... Th- you know, the music comes into play in this movie, it, it never feels like an interruption. It, it just feels like it's enhancing it. And the fact that they're, you know, jazz musicians and they're in a band, like it just plays really well into the plot for me. I know. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what was your, like, we're, we're kind of at the train station. This is, <laughs> and this is kind of like, we're, we're waiting. It's like, we're, we're finally to sort of like the gimmick of the movie. And then of course we get the train ride, which is interesting to me because it, you see, I think the train ride is where, as an audience, we become like super sympathetic to Sugar, Marilyn Monroe's character. And like we empathize with her and we we, we it's like you want to hold her and go, it's going to be OK, because you hear her story. And I feel like this is the beginning, especially for Joe, the beginning of him being less of a jerk. Yeah, I think for both of them, because for me, it kind of starts, uh, there's a scene, I think it's it's in this scene, where uh, Joe had decided that uh, that Jerry's name was going to be Geraldine, right? Yes. <laughs> and then he introduces himself as Daphne. And like, number one, uh, Jack Lemon's character is so scared and so timid, but it, it's funny to me, the second that he puts on these clothes and he he takes this persona of Daphne like he just comes to life he eats it up and he embodies it very quickly and more competently than he did as Jerry I noticed and even when he says like I like Daphne better it's like he's thought about it you know he's picked <laughs> he's he's crafting this image of himself as this woman and it's funny but it's also I don't know sort of like it, it ends up being like a character growth thing for him I feel like um and maybe I'm, you know, reading into that, but that's how it felt for me. And then with Joe, you know, they end up on this, uh, on that car with all those women and Jack Lemon's character. The first thing he says is he's like, oh, I'm locked in this car with all these women, which becomes really funny in a later scene because he, he says that that's, you know, what he wants, right? He's trapped in a car full of beautiful women. And then later there's a scene where he's trapped in his bed with a bunch of women and he's not happy. No, so I just thought that was a funny call. Like that that's a funny like the way that they set up jokes in these movies and gags is just really, really smart to me. 
Well, it's like you give them what they want and then they realize, oh, that's not what I really wanted. Right. He's like, that's not going to go how I thought it was going to go. And then also they do really humanize sugar, but they also humanize all the, the, the women in the, uh, in the scene too, because I feel like a lot of times, you know, they're just like the cute girls that are in the band, but he ends up like drinking and eating with them and, and, and being around them. And they're just as like, I guess, free spirited and, and sorted as guys are. It's just, to me, it felt like the scene was like, this is what we do when you guys aren't around. <laughs> you know, well, it was, it was like they all having a slumber party, but one where it's like, we're drinking, we're smoking, we're eating cheese and crackers. And we're telling like body jokes that like, I missed, we get the punchline, but we missed the setup. <laughs> yeah. And, and like also another smart thing they did, I think with these girls is they had that uh, that leader? What's that guy's name? Beans Beanstalk. Beanstalk. Okay, Beanstalk. And then there's a lady. And Sweet Beans- Sue. Sweet Sue. Okay, so they right off the bat they're like, you know, you women, you can't, you can't drink, you can't do this, you can't do that. And really, the lady is the uh, Sweet Sue is really the uh, the the engineer behind how strict their lives are quote unquote supposed to be because they're supposed to be like professional good women that don't get distracted by alcohol or men and then the second they go to sleep they immediately do all that (laughs) it's kind of like a this is an act we we are not these people we have to pretend to be these people but we're not behind closed doors and i thought that was kind of funny for the guy characters to see them that way oh absolutely (laughs) and you know i loved and and one of the best scenes is is for Marilyn Monroe is that first scene where she's like telling her life story about how she just has this thing for saxophone players. And I love it when she says, I come from a musical family. My, my mom's a piano teacher and my dad is a conductor. Where do you conduct? But the Baltimore and Ohio. It's just like, Oh God, what a great line. It's just, <laughs> and that's one of those scenes where you just go, Marilyn, you have timing. You yeah. just nail this. You, she you, really does. <laughs> oh, my. And, and like you said, she's playing a parody of the image that people have of her. Right. And I think sometimes maybe it was just a little too convincing. And, and so people sort of underestimate her. But yeah, she's very, very funny. And um, yeah, the, the scene where we find out she kind of has this drinking problem and you know, uh, and a little bit more about her and they end up in really compromising positions with her where they could have taken advantage of her and they kind of almost try to, but something keeps happening to where they don't. And also I think that as much as they both want to kind of compete for this girl, they can't help but actually fall for her and, and, and like her as a person and feel bad for her. It's like they become friends first. And right, it's, right. it's really nice because this is where she reveals her grand scheme. She's going to get away from all the terrible, you know, saxophone players. And she's going to go to Florida. And she's going to meet a, a millionaire. And she's just she's going to basically she's basically looking for a sugar daddy. Right. But right, it's like yeah. but but this is going to get me away from this life because she basically identifies this life as the thing that's holding her down. Right. And it is funny that. The kind of guy that's holding her back is Joe, <laughs> is exactly him. Somebody who would take advantage of her, take all her money, um, woo her, and then run away. And I think it's also funny because she's just like them. I mean, they're also having to constantly scrap for money and reinvent themselves and stuff. So they're all kind of in the same boat. 
And it leads to one of the best lines of the movie is the she's just always ending up with the fuzzy end of the lollipop. It's like, I just love, I always love that line because I always think, of, what is the fuzzy end of the lollipop? Like, what is that? <laughs> yeah, but, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but you know what it means. Like, it doesn't it, like, matter what it is. Fell on the ground? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a 20s thing and I just don't get it. Yeah. And of course, then they finally arrive at Florida, which is funny because like that, you can still go to like that beach. Like that, that beach like still exists that they've, yeah, they've that hotel in. looked familiar to me. The yeah, Coronado. I, I, I don't know up. why I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of curious if it's been in other movies before, because if it has it, it just, it, but it has that Florida look, if you know what I mean. I mean, being, a, you know, we're both kind of, su- we're both Southerners. So we, this is true. we know what the Florida look is and this hotel nails it. Well, of course, this is when we get introduced to like the last big supporting character we need, which is uh, Joey Brown as Mr. Fielding. You know, it's like Zowie. I mean, it's just like <laughs> as like the ultimate lecherous millionaire. And he has got the hots for Jack Lemon. And it is hilarious. <laughs> and yes. <laughs> and this is like perfect for Jerry because the the way he's been acting towards Sugar for like the last 10 to 15 minutes of the movie, he's now on the receiving end of that. And it's part of that character growth where it's it's that the whole walk a mile in his shoes. It's like he, they start to grow as people as they get treated like objects, like they get objectified as women. And so you've got you got you got Mr. Fielding, you know, hitting all over uh jerry daphne and then you have the creepy bellboy who keeps on going after Joe. oh my god he's so horrible <laughs> i love when he's like just like i like him what does he say like big and sassy or something and he's like oh i just want to get in my room there's also a really good line where he's like yeah <laughs> where he's like uh i think tony curtis makes some sort of comment about their appearance and jack lemon is like that doesn't matter that and you know that's just how that's, this is how it is. And I'm like, man, that's actually pretty funny and, and very true. And very true. <laughs> very true. I, you know, uh, I think there's a tendency for people to think like, I'm trying to think. I, I told like an, I'll just say older family member one time about somebody that was getting harassed and they said, oh, well, they're beautiful. You know, they, they should kind of like expect that. And I'm like, well, you know, actually it doesn't matter <laughs> how someone looks how girls look it, it just happens like all the time so i i kind of thought this scene was really funny to me because all that stuff is very familiar and there's just nothing worse than trying to get to your room and having somebody be make you really uncomfortable and you're like oh, oh thank you please go now close door <laughs> it's out. you know it sounds like it would be complimentary but it's very much like the scene with these guys it's just very annoying and frustrating oh my God. <laughs> i think i think joey brown is just He's funny. He is he really is. funny. He just has all this energy. And I always like how he refers to Mama. You know. <laughs> and I mean, and he's he's tried to marry several women or has married several women, right? Se- seven seven or eight times. Yeah. And, it's just like you know, until he finds a new one. <laughs> it's it's just it's just so hilarious. And and just and just watching Jack Lemon go, oh, you dirty old man. Until later on in the movie, he realizes, oh, my God, this is how I've been acting. <laughs> this is my future. This is if my I future. continue. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, this just leads into this is where the movie kind of starts turning into a French farce. 
Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean by that term? Um, continue. I don't think so. Okay. French farces are famous because it's the ones that are the comedies that are always slamming doors. Like people walk in one door and they're always missing someone else. So like this is where the movie just turns into like the revolving door of all the all the uh, mistaken identities and trying to keep up with the lies of who we're supposed to be at any particular moment. And it just continues through the rest of the movie with a little bit of slowing down when when everyone goes on their date, which is mm-hmm. one of the funny. It it's kind of you know when you get to the Marilyn and Tony and the Marilyn and Tony Curtis that's kind of sexy, and then you get the Joey Brown and Jack Lemmon stuff that is just freaking hilarious. <laughs> and, and the way that it it just like you could have whiplash if it wasn't done as well as it was as you're going from the highly romantic sexy stuff on the boat to the Joey Brown and Jack Lemmon doing the tango all night with this Cuban band. Yeah, yeah. I also love the introduction of uh Tony Curtis's character. Um I don't remember what he calls himself as Junior. The junior. Um because, you know, uh the other guy uh, what was his name? The the other millionaire, Brown. Fielding. Fielding. Okay, he is probably what the millionaires would actually be like, like some creepy old rich millionaire that wants to like marry these young women. But like the character that Tony Curtis is playing is so incredibly unrealistic that the millionaire would be super young and suave and you know everything that Marilyn Monroe is dreaming of, um, and and also everything that she told him she was looking for in an earlier scene. Um, and then the way that they meet when uh, when she's walking by and he just sticks his foot out and completely trips her, but not just trip her. I mean, he wipes her out <laughs> in that scene. <laughs> like the way she hits the sand, I, I laughed out loud. I was like, that's over the top. Like, that's terrible. <laughs> And I, that's and I, so funny and i love his millionaire because he totally rips off he does like a really bad cary grant impersonation like right that's what tony curtis inspired by it's like oh god i, I i'm so sorry how are how, how are you you know oh i have to worry about uh, people recognizing me and he and he, and he, and he talks in <laughs> that like that really awful you know cary grant didn't talk like that but everyone thinks he talks like that that jude day jude day jude day <laughs> Yeah, and it's kind of like only sugar would be fooled by that. <laughs> it's so obvious. But yeah, like uh she, you know, she meets him and he's everything that she's looking for and then uh Daphne runs into him on the beach as well and starts trying to challenge him and I, I really love the part where he says like, "Oh, I can't wait to tell Josephine or is it just it's I, Josephine, yes. Up? Okay, Josephine. He's like, I can't wait to tell Josephine about this. And she's like, oh, you're right. And he's like, well, let's go ahead and run back right now and starts running. And she's like, well, I don't think we have to run. And he's like, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so they like a race all the way back to the uh, to their hotel room. And then they get into their hotel room and he's like, you know, this is this is the best. We're going to wait for him to walk in and he's it's going to expose him. It's, it's going to be awesome. He's like, I can't wait. And then they hear josephine singing in the bathtub and they go in there and she's taking a bubble bath and they talk for a long time and um they're sort of sparring off and sugar's unaware of the two of them sort of going at each other about their lies and then she leaves and 
uh, Josephine's like, of all the evil things to do to this woman, which is funny because he was also deceiving her in that scene too, because he's still pretending to be a woman and he wanted to go swimming with her all afternoon. He basically just wanted to be around a bunch of women in their bathing suits. Um, so it's not like he's any better. But then when Tony Curtis gets out of the bathtub and he's covered <laughs> in that water, that says everything for him. Like, <laughs> like Daf- uh, Daphne's full of you know, getting ready to sock it to him. But then when he comes out of that bathtub, he's like, ooh, kind of pulls back right away. <laughs> oh, because because Tony Curtis is about to lay him out. And it's right. And it, you can just tell, like, I had to jump in a bathtub <laughs> in my outfit. Like, that's not cool. It's pretty funny. Oh, it was it was it's so great. And I love it. And what about that accent? Nobody talks like that. I, I love Jack Lemon making fun of Tony Curtis's accent. It's just it's just watching those two. I mean, once again, this movie this movie does not work if you do not believe that these two guys are friends and you right. totally buy it. Right, right, right. Uh, and I also noticed that like, even when they're alone in their room, <laughs> Daphne never takes off the, like the, the women's disguise. Like, I think you notice that the more you watch the movie, like I know that, you know, they don't get a lot of alone time together, but he like pretty much never takes that off. No, because and- he really kind of starts, he, he, he it, He's more like you said earlier, he's almost more comfortable as Daphne than he ever was as Jerry. And, and he definitely sounds like more like happy when he's Daphne. I mean, even though he's constantly telling jokes, but yeah, like he's like you said, he's more he's more comfortable and in that it starts to sow that seed of what's gonna happen later with his character. And oh, I really God, like that. So fun. I can't wait till we get to that part. <laughs> oh, and of course the whole the whole gag is that the millionaire wants to invite Daphne on his yacht and so of course Joe being Joe says no you don't get to have that I'm going to use this to my advantage a little bit of the old Joe still coming out and he's going to work it out so that Sugar goes on the yacht with him while Fielding and Daphne have to stay on shore so they can both have their their romantic evenings together and (laughs) it's funny though the the um, the scenes with Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe on the boat where he, of course, he plays it up like he just like he's asexual, like, yeah, like, like, like nothing like after this tragic accident in his youth, he is now completely numb to to any kind of romantic feeling, romantic or sexual feeling whatsoever. And of course, it's just a giant ploy to make Marilyn Monroe just jump all over him. I also thought it was funny that uh, when they get on the yacht, he keeps like he has to pretend like he owns it, but he keeps like opening all these wrong doors and stuff. I mean, they just set up so many gags for for things to kind of go wrong. Oh, my God. Do you know that this scene actually got the movie banned in Kansas and uh, in Memphis? This was labeled as adult entertainment because of this scene. (laughs) <laughs> that's so funny now i i had read that like even just the cross-dressing like was too disturbing for kansans oh that and the uh, the catholic league of decency which is notorious in movie history for causing problems the you know especially for like a streetcar named desire that was one where entire chunks of that movie got cut out because of them like they they listed how like this movie promoted homosexual uh, homosexualism and lesbianism and transvestitism and it was like they just decried this movie and it was like do you not have a funny bone in your body 
<laughs> well, and I, I will say it doesn't really make any judgments on any of that. Like you can kind of tell, like, I'm not saying that there's like an agenda or anything or that like, you know, that was their intent, but it certainly doesn't say no to any of that at the same time. Like, it's not like there's a character that in this movie that's like, I can't believe you two dressed as women. Uh, now you're going to be punished, you know, and like nothing bad happens to them because they do it. There's no real repercussion for it. No, so it's not. in a way, it's kind of like, yeah, I can see what they mean. But I think, you know, the intent of it was just to be funny. But because there's no like lesson, like, you know, Marilyn Monroe doesn't end up on the street because she acted too sexy and the two guys don't get in trouble for wearing dresses. So I think that's probably why they were like, oh, this is not, you know, this is promoting it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, whatever, you know, take a joke. I mean, seriously. Yeah. And then, of course, at the end of this, it's, it's, this is kind of the scene where he really realizes he actually does actually care for her. Like, this isn't just trying to, you know, this is another conquest for him. Like, I think he actually develops feelings for her after this evening. And, of course, then Jack Lemmon gets engaged. So, you know, every, everyone had a great night. <laughs> well, and I also think with his character, um, especially towards the end, and we'll get there, but... Um, I felt like his character, part of his, uh, part of why he falls for her is because she's the first person that he's had these interactions with that's actually on his level. She just doesn't know it. Because I think for everybody else, he kind of has to put on an act, right? So either he was going for these secretaries or women that had money because he needed that and because he he can't really live up to what they want anyway, right? Because he's in gambling debt and he's a jazz musician and they're just not what he's not really what they're looking for. And I think he knows that. And so like, I think lying to him and then deceiving them and, and, you know, having those conquests worked for a while. But then when he met someone that is struggling the same way he is, I don't know. It seemed like that was part of why he was like, Oh, you know, maybe I could be with somebody like me that um, is going through what I'm going through. And it's, you know, just sort of seeing the more human side, I think of it. Oh yeah. Uh, I, this whole conversation we've been having about Jerry and how he's just comfortable as Daphne, the fact that he is so down with the idea of being engaged to the millionaire, like he thinks it's like the greatest night of his life. And I think that's hilarious. I also learned that, you know how he's like shaking the maracas during that entire scene? Yeah. And there's actually, there was actually a point to that. It gave the audience a chance to laugh. So they didn't miss the next line of dialogue. Ah. It, Billy Wilder told him to do this because Jack Lemmon said when he went back and watched the movie, he realized he'd say a funny line. The audience would laugh while he was shaking the maracas and then they would be done laughing by the time he had to say his next line. So it was it was planning for laughs so you wouldn't miss the next joke. And I was like, that makes sense. I'm like, that is brilliant. This is why I love Billy Wilder movies. He had the forethought to build in wait time in a movie. And I was like, that's great. Well, and I also liked how like a lot of times in these kind of movies where there's like a millionaire and a woman trying to snag him, you know, they're they're gold diggers, right? But I felt like in this movie, you know, when he lands this millionaire and he's like, you know, yes, me to marry him and da da da. And he's like, why would you want to marry him? And he's like, security. <laughs> and I'm like, I thought that was really funny on a couple levels. Like, you know, number one, 
that is really what those two guys need. I mean, they're both desperate for cash at this point. So they can really relate to Marilyn's character. And it's one of the few times in a movie, I think, where they're not portraying somebody that's in that position of like, I need someone to take care of me negatively. Like, you know, the motive isn't necessarily that bad. Like, yeah, of course, you know, I guess on some level, like a lot of women want to just marry a millionaire, but it could also be like for them, like a little bit out of desperation. So I thought that was something funny that worked on a lot of levels. And I do think Daphne or Jerry, um, yeah, I mean, this is like, he's, he's really desired here and he's like, you know what, this, this isn't so bad. <laughs> like things are looking up for me. And I, I just thought that was really good. And of course, this is where the movie kind of finally, I feel like takes a little bit of a turn because mm. you've almost forgotten the whole reason they're in Florida in the first place is because they were running away from the mob. And I just love the super convenience of the fact that the mob decides to have like a mob convention at the very hotel that they're working at. <laughs> Although I will say their plan to run away to Florida is not a very good plan. <laughs> like, isn't there like a lot of mob activity in places like that anyway? It was called, yeah, because it was Cuba. It was your way to get to Cuba for rum and all kinds right. of stuff. I mean, yeah. So I was like, what, what? But yeah. So, so yeah, I love when you see them too, because they, they get off the L or they come down the stairs and they're just at the highlight of their like, man, look at all this great stuff that's happening to us. And then that's when they see the mobsters like in line. So they run to the elevator and of course they get right on the elevator with them, oh. which I loved. <laughs> I, lo I love it. You we haven't met you two dames before. Ever been to Chicago? Oh, we would be caught dead in Chicago. And I love how that <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, yeah. and that line comes back, and I love it. It's just, it's a great. Of course, I also do love the fact, kind of an interesting thing, that when the mobsters do get in the elevator, what's the first thing they do when they see there's two women on the elevator? They all take off their hats. It's just like, oh, such polite so, mobster business. That's very polite of you. I also love the fact <laughs> that the mob convention is called uh, the annual the annual conference of lovers of Italian opera. Yeah, they have to come up with this lofty name like, oh, this is fooling everyone. Because <laughs> we aren't just walking around, you know, carrying pieces where we all have to like, I, I love the guy who's like, who gets searched and you know, like the, the, the gun falls out of his golf pants. He's like, it ain't loaded. And then the guy does his other leg and then all the shells fall out. <laughs> just like, oh, great. Just great little bits. Just great little humor. Taking something that could be so serious, but finding the jokes in it. Right. And I mean, pretty much the second you see them, there ensues another chase scene, right? Well, it takes a little bit. It, it, go, okay. it goes a little bit longer because what they because you got to remember that uh, Jerry and Joe run to the room immediately, start packing up. Oh, that's right, that's right. Because Jerry has to break up with Sugar, which of course he then sees how devastated she is. You know, he actually, I think this is interesting because it's the first time he actually sees what he's done to a woman. Like he's right. He witnesses the aftermath, which he's never had to witness the aftermath. He just you know loves him and leaves him. Right. And I think it's an essential part of his transformation that he sees, oh, wow, I've actually hurt another human being this way. And that somebody actually cares about him that much. Exactly. And then, of course, that's when they like jump out the window and that's when the mobsters see them and they figure out, hey, those two guys, like they, they're like, oh, we know who they are. And then that's when this great chase scene ensues. Well, when they jump out of the window, too, they jump out right into their... 
like, their balcony right into where they are. Yeah. I was like, oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. This, this is where the movie gets super convenient, but it's a comedy. It's supposed to be super convenient. Oh, no. Yeah. No, I meant, of course, in the best way. <laughs> And then it's really great because then they, they you know, it, they start changing more costumes and it's, it's that French farce thing again of like, they go up the stairs, they go down the elevator, they go down the hall and, and all of this. And they end up in the middle of the banquet hall where all the mobsters are meeting. I love that part so much. <laughs> They're like under the table and you're like, well, how are they going to get out of this one? Oh, and then, of course, you've got like the, the head mobster who... I don't know who this guy is, but he has got like one of the most distinctive looks and distinctive voices I have ever seen. Because the character's name was Little Bonaparte. And it's just, some guys will say he's getting too big for his britches. I say, he's got vision. And he's just, he's just like this great, you know, I think when I, I was in a production of Guys and Dolls, I think I totally like cribbed his character for one one of the gangsters that i played because he's just he's got he's just got that voice that says i am a mobster yeah and i think too like the second that there's a party you're like oh someone's gonna die because like anytime there's some big mob hit that's what's coming next right is you know that was too showy that was too much now you're gonna have to pay plus it's kind of how it always ends anyway but Especially when there's a big hit like that. So you kind of knew there was going to be some karma coming back around to these guys. Or at least in this scene, I was like, uh oh. Well, especially when you hear that he he was like friend like toothpick Charlie was like a friend of his. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course, part of me wants to go, you do realize he ratted him out to the feds. I mean, I felt like the <laughs> I feel like there's like some mob code there that would have said, You got what was coming to you. I don't know. That's just that's just the way I always read mob movies. It's like as soon as you rat yourself that's true. you rat yourself out to the feds, it's like, no, nah, I know you get you know, if you get rubbed out, that's on you. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, what happens? You've got Jerry and Joe witnessing another mob hit. And now they have all the mobsters coming after them. I think it's funny that, like, right after they shoot all of them, they're like, okay, now. And they, like, run. And you're like, why did they do that? But it took me a minute to go, oh, they did that because the doors were open. Yes. Yeah. I was like, why would they leave right then? Why wouldn't they? I was like, oh, yeah, they, that's probably their only opportunity. And then, <laughs> and then, of course, this is when uh, Joe talks Jerry into saying, you're going to call that millionaire boyfriend of yours and we're going to get on his boat and he's going to be our ticket out of there because they hear the monster saying that they're covering the railroad stations and the airports and the roads. And like the yacht is like the only way to get out of there. And I love it, too, because that's also where, you know, uh, Joe goes back and then he sees Marilyn uh, Sugar singing this beautiful, like, it, it's called I'm Through With Love. Oh, one of those great, uh, you know, broken hearted ballads. Like, mm-hmm. life just beat me down. It's like the jazz version of a country song. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and once again, he has that moment. And that has that great scene where dressed as Josephine, he goes up on stage and just plants one on her in front of everybody. I kept thinking that must have been a scene back then where they were like, okay, now you've crossed a line, you know? <laughs> but I always feel like that sweet Sue is there to undercut it because you see <laughs> the true. look on her face and she's like, Beanstalk! <laughs> <laughs> I know she was so concerned about their 
morality the whole movie so that must have been that must have just broke her (laughs) (laughs) exactly and then of course you see that great realization on sugar's face that she's like oh because she like recognizes the kiss and it's like yeah oh i get it and of course you know they she immediately starts chasing them on a bike and then i love it when like they show up at you know the millionaire speedboat to get on his yacht and he's like this is this this is uh this is Josephine. She's my bridesmaid. And then yeah. <laughs> and then Marilyn shows up on the bike and like another bridesmaid, flower girl. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course this leads to one of the greatest comedic endings of any movie I have ever seen. I don't know if you feel the same way, but the ending to this movie is just so pitch perfect. It, it's not expected. Like, number one, it's very sweet because uh, it starts off with Tony Curtis, um, you know, coming completely clean with Marilyn. He takes the wig off and everything. And he's like, this is who I am. And and he's like, I've been lying to you this whole time. I'm not a millionaire. And she's like, I know it's OK. And then he's like, and I'm also like the kind of guy you don't want to be with. Like, I'm a jerk and I'm a musician. She's like, I told you I always fall for those kind of guys. Like, just total acceptance of who he is. Somebody that's truly loving him how he is. Like, on the one hand, it's funny. And on the, on the other hand, it's it's really sweet. And then we get the next scene, which we're sure is going to be like the opposite of that. Right. Like. You know, he he starts trying to uh, use like euphemisms for actually telling this millionaire what's going on. He's like, uh, Jerry says, you know, oh, well, I I smoke. And he's like, that's okay. And he's like, well, uh, what what does he say? He's like, I uh, I've been running around with musicians. I have a bad past. He's like, oh, I forgive you. And then he's like, I can't have children, which is like almost saying it. (laughs) And the the way he says it so seriously, he's like, I can never have children. And he's like, "Eh, we'll adopt. And then he finally goes, and he like rips his wig off and goes, I'm a man. And he's like, nobody's perfect. (laughs) Uh, And then, and then, and then, and then the look on Jack Lemon's face of, huh? And then the music, and the music just comes and goes, but dump, but bump, 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 blackout. And it's just like, there's no real time to react. I think that's what makes it so funny is like, we don't have to see the next reaction really, you know? No, no. Uh, I mean, you see the look on his face, but there's nothing said. No, <laughs> which I think would have undercut it. So it's like perfect timing to end it right there. No, I, I, I laughed at that part. I thought it was pretty funny. And again, really sweet. <laughs> I mean, this is this is considered like one of the greatest closing lines of any movie ever. I mean, it, it's kind of up there with this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship from Casablanca, and yeah, and the co writer of the screenplay, um, I.A.L. Diamond, actually fought Billy Wilder and uh, Diamond's own wife, thinking that this was the perfect way to end the movie, because everyone's expecting the millionaire to have this giant blow up when he finds out. And the right. humor comes from the fact that he just brushes it off with that great line of, hmm, nobody's perfect. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, there's there's not a lot of movies that wrap up that nicely, too. Like like you said, another way to have this wrap up would be for both of them to get discovered and for it to be like, oh, you, you know, like for her to go, you're a jerk, just like I thought. And for him to be like, you're a man. Oh, no. You know, and but it's like that would be so cliche. And we've seen that a bunch of times. Um, I have a fun little piece of personal trivia. I go won free. I, I won a trivia contest because I knew that line. 
Nice. Yeah, it was like a movie. Tr- it was a movie quote contest. It was it was teacher related, and it was th- it, this was in the section of quotes we should say to each other. And I was in, in a in a in a in a entire giant auditorium filled with an entire school system worth of teachers. I was the only one who knew the ending to this movie and like had to raise my hand up and in the middle of it shout, I know it just to get the person's attention. (laughs) Well, I feel like this is one of those movies, like there's a lot of classic movies that a lot of people haven't seen. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a lot of movies. Sometimes I'm even surprised when I, when I talk to my parents about a movie that I saw that was older and I just assume they saw it. Because either it was in their time or it was really popular during their time. And there's a lot that people haven't seen. It's like the second that they become classics, there's a big segment of the audience out there that stops watching them. And that's kind of sad. It's very sad. Um, I I was very happy. And I think it was like in 2000 or 2001 when the American Film Institute was doing all those 100 greatest lists. You know, this, of course, made it into the list of 100 greatest movies. But when they did the list that was specifically the 100 greatest comedies, this movie was voted the number one comedy of all time. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big comedy nerd. That's like another one of my fandoms that I really like. So, And, and I really appreciated this a lot. I thought it was hilarious. Um, ironically enough, number two was Tootsie. So two movies oh, really? about cross-dressing <laughs> make the two mm, top spots. <laughs> that's really interesting i wonder why that is hmm. i i don't know because i don't know dustin hoffman <laughs> made a pretty good looking that. woman too i just have to say you know he did i i've seen that one <laughs> it's been a long time though <sighs> like i can't quote it or tell you much about it i i but. can't either but you know it was kind of like the reason I, I i'm gonna put a little plug here at the end um the reason i picked this movie is because about a week ago the criterion collection just released a completely restored blu-ray of some wow. like it hot and that's actually nice. what i watched last night when i watched the movie to prepare for this podcast and for all of you, the movie lovers in your audience, if you if any of you have not gone completely like digital and you still appreciate a fine physical media, I can highly recommend the Criterion Collection. They make a point of finding films from around the world that are considered um, great, some of the greatest films of all time, and they publish editions they're specifically about getting the highest technical quality and the best special features available so i i the one i watched is this complete 4k digital restoration from the original masters and nice oh it looked gorgeous yeah my my uncle gil who i had on the the blade runner episode he uh Back in the day before you could buy these online, you just saw him all the time at Borders or Barnes and Nobles in the back looking at the Criterion Collection. <laughs> oh, Tim Rooney, who you've had on the show before and yeah. is a is a big fan. Oh, he and I, like whenever Barnes and Nobles, like two or three times a year, does their fifty percent off sales. Oh my wallet is my wallet is doomed. And I so, it's crying. <laughs> but I I would just recommend if people want to check out this movie, you can get it digitally, and that's great. But if if you if you if you're a real connoisseur, I can I can definitely recommend the Criterion edition that just came out. A, uh, you know, I don't know when this episode will drop, but it, it's it's like brand spanking new and it is totally worth it. it is a great edition of the movie to own. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that leads to my last two questions. Uh, 
what keeps you coming back to this movie? I don't care how many times I watch it. It is funny every time. You know, some comedies, after you've seen it once or twice, the jokes just stop being funny. This movie, I was still, I know what all the jokes are, and I don't care. And I'm still going to laugh at them. And yesterday, I had a really crappy day at work. And nothing made me happier than to just cuddle up in my blanket after my family went to bed and pop this movie in and just laugh my butt off for two hours because it's sweet and it's funny and it just makes you feel good. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, um, what would you say to someone that's never seen it before? Why? <laughs> I What I would say is... What would you have said to me last week? <laughs> I didn't have to say anything. You were like completely gone. Oh. I would just say, listen, it's yes, it's black and white. Yes, it's over like 50 years old at this point. But it is. But if you love comedy, if you love rapid fire, snappy dialogue with some great musical numbers and freaking Marilyn Monroe. I mean, if I, if that doesn't sell you, there's no hope for you. That's that's all I have to say. Because really, let's be honest, that's what sold me. Yeah. I, I see black and white gangster prohibition era with two dudes cross-dressing and Marilyn Monroe and jazz. And I bought a movie sight unseen just to take it home and watch it. Like that's, I mean, that's all it took for me to do it. And I would say, oh, my God. I mean, I think just a few weeks ago, Turner Classic Movies showed this again. You know, John in, in the Facebook group loves to give you, like, the weekly rundown of what's coming on Turner Classic Movies. And when I, yeah. and when I saw this on <laughs> – John's awesome. And when I saw this on the, uh, on the lineup, I was like, yeah. <laughs> just, like, it's a movie <laughs> that just – it's going to make you happy whenever you watch it. And so if you just want a movie that's going to let you not have to worry about – deep messages or super serious if you just want to laugh your butt off for two hours this is the movie for you and and probably one of the best too you know like i and i think it set a precedent for having these movies where i guess a guy cross dresses and it's not it's not like mean you know what i mean i keep saying that but it, there, there is a way you could have told this story where it was like not as sweet and not as uh, empathetic. And I think it, I think by being so successful and being such a hit, it probably set a precedent going forward where when people do copy this movie, they keep those, those concepts in mind, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you don't want to insult half your audience, right? No. Whichever <laughs> half you happen to be insulting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I would say that it's a classic for a reason. And I think, you know, we talked about a lot of different actors and directors in this, but I think particularly for me, Jack Lemmon was a name that I heard all my life. And I even was vaguely aware of who he was, but I feel like this movie is like one of his, like at his best roles. And so if you've heard that name thrown around a lot all your life and you don't, you, you kind of don't really have a sense. I think it's a really good movie to pick up and, and watch. Well, the next movie we might have to talk about would, would, is something that I would highly recommend you and the listeners checking out because the very next year when Billy Wilder paired back up with Jack Lemmon and did The Apartment, oh, mm -hmm. what a fantastic movie because it's that's Jack Lemmon, Fred McMurray, and uh, Shirley MacLaine. 
And oh. uh, we might have to do that the next time you've got some room for me, because that is okay. a movie. Since you said you haven't seen it, you need to see that movie. Yeah, I think I knew Jack Lemon from The Odd Couple. I think that's my like earliest. Oh, it's my earliest. Too. I mean, who who doesn't? Yeah, who? It's almost like who doesn't get introduced to Jack Lemon through The Odd Couple? Right, right. And then like, I guess grumpy old men is the only other thing I can think of. Um, but but yeah, so so again, yeah, there, it, it's nice to see actors in like, I guess like their prime, you could say it's classic Marilyn Monroe and classic Jack Lemmon and classic Tony Curtis. So yeah, it's just it classic. I mean, that's that's right. the word for this movie. And in like the most positive and in the most positive sense of the word. Yes, definitely. Well, Scott, thank you again for coming on. Always love having you. Oh, I always love being here. And thank you so much for inviting me. Like when you when you when you wrote me and was like, hey, I got a spot available. I was like, I, I was like with bells on. And then when I thought about this movie, I was like, yes, I get to check my I love that movie bucket list of, you know, I, I'm trying to check all the boxes. And it's like this kind of took care of classic and comedy. It's like I, I wanted to wanted to do this. And you gave me the opportunity with this movie. It's fantastic. And Scott, where can people find you? Oh, I am. I am on most social media platforms. I'm most active on Twitter. You can find me at Scott DC 27. I'm also on Vero. If you happen to uh, find yourself over on that social media platform. And for my podcast, you can, of course, visit www.suicidesquadcast.com. That will be a website where you can find our entire network of shows, which, of course, does include the OG Suicide Squadcast with <laughs> me. And my co-host, Tim, come check us out. We have a fun time. We love Lisa. It, it, it's uh, a love fest when it comes to our little, you know, Potter and family. I, I totally agree. Well, thanks so much and uh, have a good one. You too. 